Today on the No City on the Sideline Dad podcast, I have a question for you. Is healthcare broken? We answer that question next with my guest, Dr. Dean Wallman, author of the book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare. Next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, my name is Joe Foley. Guess what? I'm just like you, a crazy dad. No, not so crazy, but crazy busy person trying to figure out this world one day at a time. I really want to say thank you for being here. If this is your first time, welcome. I really do appreciate it. You spending time, it means a lot. It really does. Hey, I'm an expert trying to figure out what it means, you know, what it means to be us. You know what I mean? Figuring out how you're going to pay for your healthcare, which is the topic we're talking about today. Or just trying to figure out everyday life, trying to be a better me, better father, better parent, well, father parent on the same thing. Next up, my interview with Dr. Dean Waldman author of the book, Curing the Cancer in the U.S. Healthcare. There's a reason why I want to bring him on, because talking about healthcare is an important topic. This topic affects everyone from being married with a family, needing health insurance, single person. It doesn't matter. It, it crosses all genders, crosses all backgrounds, because healthcare is important. And also, healthcare becomes a real big talking point during an election. I mean, it's one-sixth of the U.S. economy. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. My guest, Dr. Dean, authored, authored a book, 250 articles published, and he wrote two, 12 books and four bestsellers. So he has a kind of idea what he's talking about. He has the credentials from being educated at Yale, Yale, Chicago, Med, Harvard, and more. He's former chief of cardiology at the University of Chicago, and, the, and he's also board of directors of the New Mexico Health Insurance Exchange. Great, this is some great information he passed on, especially about to talk about his book a little bit. Because this topic affects, like I said, talk affects all of us. Dr. Dean Chan's a lot, so let's jump right into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dean. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And I have to say specifically that uh, I wanted to be on uh, your particular podcast because of the title. And uh, the reason is uh, a little bit interesting and, and sad at the same time. namely. No sitting on the sidelines. Well, that's what I'm trying not to do. I'm trying to get something done. And the reason it's a little sad for me is that my natural allies to try and actually fix our broken healthcare system, or I prefer to call it a sick system, ought to be my colleagues, all the just a little over a million doctors, a little over six million nurses, all of whom are frustrated with this system that really doesn't work and doesn't help us take care of the patients. And yet they're all, essentially all, sitting on the sidelines Largely, I believe, because when you get down to it, they just don't have the time. There's so many patients who need their attention right this minute that to uh, advocate for a change in the system, to talk to legislators, to do all the reading that I've had to do, to, to study, to get a business degree, which I did get which helps me understand what the hell is going on. They just don't have time for it. So uh, they're sitting on the sidelines and I'm a little sad about that. How did you get involved in this topic? How did, how, like, how did it start for you? 
it, um, it was uh, a bit of a, an epiphany for me, quite frankly. I was the chief of cardiology at the University of Chicago, very prestigious position, years and years of training and, and uh, publishing papers, medical papers, and, and doing all these things so that I could advance in the ranks. And there I was in this very prestigious position. I'm sitting there in one of these meetings with the CFO of the hospital droning on about my own department. And I realized, whoa, I don't understand what he's talking about. How, how can that be with all this education and so forth? Well, if you think about it for a second, and I did for more than a second, it occurred to me that I had no business experience, no understanding of strategy or accounting or corporate culture or any of the things to run a business. And yet I was responsible for this department of cardiology, which was a $20 million a year business. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing as a businessman. So because of that, I went back to uh, to medical school. I went back to school and got my uh, MBA and that really opened my eyes. I began to understand what's really wrong with our healthcare system instead of constantly complaining about what everybody complains about, which are the symptoms of the problem. The symptoms like overspending, the symptoms like the amount of money that an average American family has to put out for healthcare, $28,000 a family of four in 2018. That's how much people were forced to spend on healthcare. And if you're healthy, that money went in the toilet. So all of these symptoms were uh, what we read in the newspaper, the number of insured or uninsured. Uh, I can't find a doctor to take care of me. These are all real, but they're all symptoms. And so when I went back to business school and I developed all these tools that business people use, but applied them to medicine, that's how I figured out what's really wrong with healthcare. Uh, I have a question. Is the insurance company running the, the care or is the doctor? Oh, the answer to that is simple. The, it, uh, l- but let's just make it a little bit broader and say the third-party payer is running medicine, not the doctor, and the patient does not is not the decision maker for his or her own care. You have to do what the insurance company or the government, whichever, uh, allows you to do. And in the time frame that they allow you to do it, I mean, there are these articles from the VA system with people, our veterans, literally, I mean literally, dying, waiting in line for care, or uh, what was it? Uh, 752 people in Illinois were documented to die waiting for approved care, but it just couldn't be provided in a timely fashion. So the answer to your question is who's making the decisions. The answer is a bureaucrat somewhere, whether it's an insurance company or in Washington, is making your medical decision and not you and not the doctor. That's very interesting, too, because I never really thought of that. Me as a as a patient going to see the doctor, I didn't realize, I, I, I mean, I have insurance. I mean, I'm lucky to have insurance. And and it's, it's it's interesting how how that works. But I mean, so the system, how sick is the healthcare system? 
Well, you, you talk about yourself, so let's talk about you for a second. You go to the doctor because you have whatever you have, I'll say a headache or something, and the doctor does a, a history, a physical, um, tries to figure out what's wrong with you, and decides that you need drug X, whatever drug X is, okay? He tries to, or she tries to uh, order, write a prescription for that drug for you, and what happens is he has to access an electronic prescription program that is determined by his insurance company and his insurance company, uh, what's called a pharmacy benefit manager, that's a program basically, says, nope, the first drug that you're allowed to use for that particular condition is drug Y, even though the doctor wanted to prescribe drug X for you. So, hello, you don't get what the doctor thinks is best. You get what the insurance company allows the doctor to write a prescription for. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm sitting in the, in the waiting room and I see different people and I, we all had different health insurances. Do we get treated differently according to our health insurance? Sure. And the answer is depends on what, for example, to take drugs, what the pharmacy benefit manager and that is not a person, that's a program. What the pharmacy benefit manager has decided is that and has contracted for the least expensive, lowest risk, but also least likely to be effective drug for you. And different insurance companies have different pharmacy benefit managers, even with the patients having the same condition. So, yeah. Depending on your insurance company, it's much worse in my world, by the way. In my world where, you know, we operate on babies with holes in their heart and valves that aren't open and blood vessels that are in the wrong place and stuff like that. Well, in my world, it's a very small world and everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. And you know who has good results with that uh, particular procedure versus somebody else who has good results with another different procedure. So as a physician, you want your patient to get the best chance for a good outcome. And in my world, that means live life or death uh, for, you know, babies with congenital heart disease. Well, every day I would have to fight with some insurance company, which would say to me, no, you can't send the patient to hospital X, which has the best results with that particular uh, condition. You have to send the patient to hospital Y because we have a contract with that hospital. Now, I, as a physician, don't want to go, don't want to send my patient to that hospital because their results aren't as good. Well, too bad. And then that's not, that's not seem right at all. <laughs> of course, it's not right because what's happening is a bureaucrat or an insurance executive or a, a Washington person in a, a CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, uh, Services, are making these decisions and they're saying, these are the rules and these are the guidelines and you have to follow them. And as a physician, you don't have a big choice. Matter of fact, you don't have any choice. You have to do what the patient's insurance carrier says you can and cannot do and in what time frame. It's um, also interesting, too, is another thing about the um, healthcare market, like um, I, the Affordable Health Care Act, that's another word, or, or quote, Obamacare or stuff like that. Is that helping helping patients at all? Well, what's, what it's really doing, if you sort of cut through all of the mumbo jumbo and so forth, is A, 
it is giving free insurance by free. I mean, no charge. I don't mean free because there is no such thing as free. Uh, no charge insurance. Uh, somewhere around 90% of all the newly insured pay people under Obamacare, the latest data would suggest around, uh, would suggest around 16 million people are newly insured, are done through Medicaid, not through private insurance or Obamacare insurance or the health insurance uh, exchanges there it's mostly uh, Medicaid so because of Medicaid expansion so they get no charge insurance and the problem is that the reimbursement schedules for Medicaid are so low that fewer and fewer doctors are willing to accept Medicaid patients. So what we have done effectively is we have increased the number of insured people and decreased the access to care, which is exactly a reverse of the way the hell the system is supposed to be because the system is not to save money. The system is not first to insure people. The system is first and foremost to get a person in a doctor's office in time. And we're not doing that. And Obamacare made things worse, not better. And everybody's talking about the fact that it's unaffordable, even though it's called the Affordable Care Act. And while that's true, I keep saying, hey, we got to stop talking about money first and coverage first. And we got to start talking about how do we get our people to get in a doctor's office in time. The wait time, give, give you a good example, the wait time to see a physician went up as a result of Obamacare. I mean, there's lots of statistics to prove that statement. Well, that decreased timely access to care. So it actually made the system worse in the very thing that the system is supposed to be good at, which is getting a patient care that he or she needs. Well, yeah, interesting about that, too, and the, you know, you said the time keeps people keep waiting longer to see doctors. And like the U.S. healthcare system compared to other countries like Canada. I mean, how does that compare? Well, the answer is for if routine, simple care, no question, they get in. They, Canadians, uh, get in to see the doctor faster. They get care that's uh, often quite uh, satisfactory, high quality. The doctors uh, and nurses there, certainly in Canada, are very well trained. Uh, I have no concerns in that regard. However, the way that they control their costs is by their budget allocations. So, for example, if you have, God forbid, you're in a fire and you have burns, they have an inadequate number of burn units. If you need complex surgery, they only have a certain number, they've only allocated a certain amount of money for operating rooms, especially uh, special care like cardiac operating rooms. And so people wait and wait and wait and sometimes die waiting in line. It's called death by queuing. And uh, I actually spend quite a bit of time on that in the book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, because we all talk about insurance when we should be talking about care, but we're really what we really should be talking about is timely care. You got to get in just because somebody says, oh, yeah, my, oh, I'll give you a great example. <laughs> I had two mothers, one of whom was British and one of whom was American. My British mother, of course, was in the National Health Service in, in uh, Great Britain. At 78 years of age, she and she was working on a daily basis. She actually was a midwife, uh, had delivered 
I don't know if I could say a hundred thousand, but certainly thousands of children over her over her career uh, successfully. And she fell down and broke her hip. And the National Health Service informed her, yes, you are eligible for surgery on your hip. And yes, you're going to need a hip replacement. And we have scheduled your surgery for 27 months in the future. So what they were going to do was take a 78-year-old lady and literally put her in bed because she couldn't walk. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, she was immobile. Um, And... What would happen to a 78-year-old woman who is put at, at total and complete bed rest? Answer, she would get obese, she would develop pneumonia, she will develop a pulmonary embolus, and she will die. I mean, you ask any physician what happens to an older person who is put at total bed rest, that's the ter- worst thing you can do for somebody. You gotta keep people moving. Well, <laughs> that's what the National Health Service wanted to do. That's 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 not a good thing. That is not a good thing. And that's what that's one of, in my view, the major problems with all repeat all government controlled healthcare systems, which is they control costs by medical rationing. Uh, let me give you another example, which actually is really terrifying. Uh, I'll tell you exactly the story. I was on a podium. I was giving a speech. This is about two years ago, maybe three years ago. Giving a speech, and right next to me was a physician who was an MD, JD, the obviously lawyer, uh, and he was an ethics expert. And we were actually talking about uh, right to live, right to die, abortion, things that are really very, very emotional and very contentious. And he was in a wheelchair. And I was uh, uh, really interested to hear what he had to say. And I wanted to learn who he was. And so afterwards, uh, I um, asked him, you know, hi, my name is Dr. Dean, blah, blah, blah. And he tells me that he is a um, he is in. Uh, um, uh, kidney failure and is on a list to get a transplant and he's getting dialysis three times a week. And I said, oh, well, I'm really glad that we have the medical technology um, to uh, help you and to keep you alive and uh, let you contribute to, to our community, community being the United States. He said, well, yeah, but in Great Britain, I'd be dead. I said, I'm sorry, what did you say? He said, well, in Great Britain, the National Health Service has decided that kidney dialysis in persons over 55 years of age is not, quote, cost effective, end quote, and therefore they don't allow it. So, and I'm 56. So had I been in Great Britain right now, I'd be dead. Whoa, that's that's not, that's, um, wow. That makes you appreciate what you do have here. That's exactly right, which is why I oppose anything like Medicare for All or this latest uh, nightmare, Medicare for America, all misnamed. They're not Medicare at all. And the reason I I oppose them is because the government will literally control what care you can get and when you get it, and the budget will determine whether you live or die. And I just don't want that for my patients. I want my patients, and I'm, I'm speaking just personally, I want to be able to do the best thing I can for that medical science can provide to my babies. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you something else. The reason I quit clinical medicine was when Obamacare 
was upheld by the uh, Supreme Court in 2012, I withdrew from clinical medicine and taking care of patients, even though I love taking care of babies. And why did I do that? Because Obamacare has what's called the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is literally a committee that meets in secret, whose decisions are final as to what doctors can and cannot do for their patients. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, a fair number of my uh, children uh, have Down syndrome because about a third of children with Down syndrome, trisomy 21, uh, have heart problems, some very severe and some actually rather straightforward. Bottom line is, these are some of the nicest, cutest, uh, uh, friendliest children you'll ever see. And I've taken care of hundreds in my career. And I could just see them saying, well, you know, it's not cost effective to operate on children with Down syndrome. So, gee whiz, Dr. Waldman, no, you can't do that. I had this nightmare. I, had, I, I, I didn't say they did it because they haven't done anything yet, but it scared me. Definitely. That's 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 because, uh, yeah, I can see why you're scared. And I can, I can they haven't, no, obviously they haven't done anything yet, but I'm saying I can understand where you're coming from. Wow. <laughs> well, that's why I'm trying to get a truth, if you will, out into the national narrative so that people understand certain things like if you want the government to entitle you to whatever they say they'll entitle you to, what they're really doing is saying, we will decide what care you get and when you get it and who can provide it for you. And if you want that, then you're not going to get the health care you need. And that is a terrible situation, which is why we have to go the opposite way from government that is federally controlled health care. And that's what the subtitle of my book is. It's called States Care. And what I am strongly advocating is very simple. Get the federal government out of health care. I know that. What, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Okay. The answer to the question is, well, let's just think about this for a second. California uh, has made it very clear that they want a single payer system. Now, I have actually done studies. I wrote a whole book entitled "Single Payer Won't Save Us," and I think that it's a it's a uh, mistake. But but California has 39 million people. That's two million more people than the entire country of Canada. They should be entitled to have the system they want, and if they can make it work, more power to them. If we get the federal government out of healthcare, we will recoup, we, the American people, will recoup a trillion, repeat, a trillion dollars of healthcare spending that currently goes to the federal bureaucracy in all forms. If we just get them out of healthcare, we will gain a trillion dollars without any tax increase, without any of that, by simply getting the feds out of health care. So I say, okay, California, you want single payer? Let the feds give you back the money that they're already giving you, whatever the amount is. It's uh, just for Medicaid for California. It's $200 billion a year. Fine. Wow. Give California back $200 billion and say to them, live and be well. It's your money. You know how to take care of your people better than we do. One size does not fit all. Thank you very much. Texas, I know because I advise Texas, would want a market-based system with a safety net. So 
they should give us, Texas, back our, uh, what is it, $17 billion a year uh, for, or it's actually $18 billion a year for Medicaid. Give us that money. We'll take care of our Medicaid population. We can do it a heck of a lot better than all these federal mandates. And by the way, we don't have to pay you all this money for federal compliance. We can use that money for patient care, for uncompensated care, for rural hospitals, for elder care. We need that money to actually provide care. So that's my solution. Get the feds out of healthcare. I, I really want people to read that book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, because it explains why Washington is actually the problem. You know, to paraphrase uh, President Reagan, Washington isn't the solution to healthcare. Washington is the problem in healthcare. And so the solution is to get Washington out of it. And that can be done actually rather easily, but it has to be done from a grassroots groundswell because Lord knows, and I'm saying this both of Republicans and Democrats equally, Mm -hmm. they don't want to give up control of one-sixth of the U.S. economy. And that's basically what I'm saying. I had a quick question. What is a market-based health system? Okay. A market-based health system is, in essence, people have... HSAs that are unlimited, that are can be transferred across state lines. You can put as much money as you want uh, in it. You can uh, pass it on to your children. You can put as much money as you want, I say, into it. Now, you simply buy uh, high deductible catastrophic insurance, which is very cheap, you know, $10,000 deductible insurance. And otherwise, you pay for your care. You go shop for your care. Now, let me, people say, oh, well, care is way too expensive. I can't do that. Oops. Wait a minute. Let me give you some data. If you look at, and there are more and more of these, either a direct pay, uh, primary care, or um, uh, practices around the country, it's really growing by leaps and bounds. Or there is a direct pay surgery where it's cash on the barrel head. Now, here's the important point. The difference in cost between you're going to a direct pay where it's cash on the barrel head and uh, insurance-based systems, third-party payer systems, whether it's insurance or the government, the difference is that the direct pay is between 10 and 20% of the cost of the insurance. Example, what is it? Uh, Hip replacement. Hip replacement, uh, I actually have this data again in the book. Hip replacement um, in um, a university hospital, uh, just uh, simple, no complications, no diabetes, none of that. Just simple hip replacement charges $35,120 or something like that. Call it $35,000 for direct pay, $12,000. Well, it's interesting because I always see that on my health insurance bill. Um, it's like I play around the procedure was a hundred dollars, but they charge my insurance company sixty. And like because my where I work, I have a private. We have private funded healthcare. We have somebody manage it, but we fund it ourselves. My company that I work for, and um, I always see the bill difference. I'm like, wow! I've always wondered what that meant. <laughs> Well, let me tell you, whatever you see, you've got private insurance. Let me tell you about the reality of Medicaid. My bills for, say, 
a, um, a baby with a complex congenital heart problem uh, for a procedure, well, uh, an average bill uh, when we operate on a child, let's say is my, this is just for me, is around uh, 4,000, let's say between four and $5,000, okay? Everything, you know, pre-op, operative, post-op, et cetera, et cetera, outpatient, whatever. So let's say $5,000. Medicaid paid me $380, period. Didn't matter what I did. Didn't matter what I billed as long as I billed more than $380. So wait a minute. Your bill, I mean, the patient looks at this bill and says, whoa, you know, Walmart's worth it because my child lived, but $5,000, that's, you know, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's not what I got. I got $380. Oh, wow. That's, it's like a loss. It's like a big, huge loss. And that's why more and more doctors, latest statistics in the country are less than 70% of doctors and it's dropping except Medicaid. And in Texas, which I know better because I work for Texas, um, uh, Texas, it's less than half. 47% of Texas doctors accept Medicaid patients. Uh, which means that 53% or over half don't. Oh, I got another, I got another statistic. You're going to love this one. <laughs> I, I, I just, I just got this one. Somebody was asking me actually on the radio, maybe a couple of days ago, whatever. Well, what do you mean by all this bureaucratic cost and all this wasted money on bureaucracy? And I said, okay, here's a great true statistic for you. In the state of Texas, there are 50,000 licensed physicians who care for patients. So remember the number 50,000. Okay. The Texas Health and Human Services Commission is the state agency that oversees the care that those 50,000 doctors uh, provide for 29 million people um, in the state of Texas. Okay. How many people work for the Texas Health and Human Services Commission? Answer, 62,000. Oh, wow. So there are more bureaucrats who, by the way, get paid about the same as the doctors. Then there are doctors in the state of Texas. And I remember saying this actually at a meeting that I was at maybe two weeks, three weeks ago. And somebody stood up and said, hell, Dr. Waldman, I'd rather have 62,000 more doctors. And I went, well, you're right. And so would everybody else. <laughs> is, there, is there a doctor shortage right now? Yes. Are you kidding? There's a doctor short uh, between uh, 1995 and 2010. I think those uh, maybe it was 1990 and 2010. Applications to U.S. medical schools fell by 20 percent. There's something like 25 uh, percent of residencies are not being filled on a yearly basis in the state of Texas. 28 counties, repeat, counties have no doctor in them at all. Oh, no. But it's, I mean, I see a lot of um, physician assistants instead of doctors now. Yes. And and I, uh, all I can say is amen to them. Uh, uh, my my uh, personal physician, the, my first line, is actually an advanced practice nurse. These are wonderful people. The trouble is there aren't enough of them either. Oh, wow. There's a shortage of them, too. I mean, the med I mean, there's nobody just wants to uh, take up that that profession as a doctor or is it? Well, par partly that's true. And partly you have to also look at the reality, which is the average U.S. medical student leaves medical school with one hundred and eighty four thousand dollars in student loans. 
That's an average number. And so you're leaving medical school and you're trying to decide what to do. And gee, you know, being a, a, a small town doctor and knowing everybody and boy, that sounds really attractive and, and people will respect me and I'll be part of the community. Well, wait a minute. I'll never pay off those loans. I need to do something that is a higher, a higher paid uh, thing like surgery or like orthopedics or uh, ophthalmology where I'll get paid a lot more and I'll actually be able to pay off those student loans. So we get more specialists and, and fewer primary care doctors. And what we need are primary care doctors. Interesting. I never thought of those statistics. I didn't really think about it. I just go to my doctor. I never really I see the stuff on the news, but it's kind of interesting speaking with you to see the understand what's going on. Because I'm as as a as a patient, I want to know. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what my doc what my doctor's doing, and I want to know am I getting the correct care? Because that's important. I guess. And believe me, your doctor is fighting pretty much every day, once a day or more, with some insurance company to get you what he or she knows you need as opposed to what he or she is allowed to do by the insurance benefits manager or by the, the rules of the insurance company. I mean, every insurance company has got different rules and we're supposed to keep up with them. Um, it, it's, it's just, it's just crazy. The leading complaint, number one complaint I get from, I'm on the uh, health exchange board uh, for the state of New Mexico, actually. And uh, so I go around and I ask people what they want, what's wrong. Uh, so I can learn at the ground level. The number one complaint by far of patients is not the cost. That's number two. Number one complaint is, and I quote, well, I finally got in to see the doctor and all he did was look at a computer screen, fill out some forms, give me a prescription and, and push me out the door. Why? Because we have so many rules for compliance in order to keep your license, in order to keep your hospital privileges. And these are all, these don't help patients. All they do is, uh, you know, fill out forms and, and billing uh, a for <laughs> the original application form for Obamacare. You ready? was 21 pages long. Oh, <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot of. That's a lot of stuff to fill out. I mean, some people. That's put, a lot of stuff to fill out. That's a lot of data that the government, quite frankly, doesn't need. Like what it means, like stuff like um, oh, your health history or what was what was in oh, that? No, no, it's you know where you lived uh, over the last ten years. Um, uh, who are your relatives? Because they're trying to figure out whether you claim this person or that person under your policy and so forth. Uh, proof of citizenship, even though uh, California just ignores that and and uh, covers people who aren't uh, here legally. Um, and oh, by the way, it's in ten point font. So those of us who are old and have trouble reading, you can't, you don't have room to put this stuff down. It, it's just, it's like the government is trying to acquire big data, you know, capital B, capital D. Um, and um, it's really none of their business. The fact is, if you're going to get government insurance, all you should prove is where you live, who you are, are you a citizen and what your income is, period. That's it. That's probably really no. I mean, they're, like you said, they're making a database. I guess um, if I was wrapping up, I guess some final thoughts. Maybe what what if, I, if, if me myself? What 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 should I do to make sure I get the correct care? If you have a doctor that you and I'm talking to, uh, to you, Joe, you have a doctor and that you're happy with and is doing a good job for you. Whatever you do, don't change for 
other people, I would say the following, consider going to what's called a direct pay practice, a direct primary care practice. The reason for that is the following. Direct primary care practices are memberships. So you pay a monthly fee and you see the same doctor. You choose the doctor. You see the same doctor every time that doctor has plenty of time to see you and can take a history and do a physical and look you in the eye. And in contrast to the university hospital doctors that have to be, quote, efficient. I mean, I'm supposed to see 4.2 patients an hour. Oh, wow. Okay, that's crazy. It takes me 15, 20 minutes just playing with a child on the floor before he or she is comfortable with me examining them. So I just ignore those efficiency statistics. But to answer your question, find a doctor that actually will spend time with you. And the only ones that I know of that have that time and do it are what's called direct primary care. Now, if they want to, if anybody wants to reach out to you, like con- con- contact you, email you or something, how can they reach you? All right. Two things. One, by all means, go to the website, deanwaldman.com. And I have to warn you that my mother put an E on the end of Dean 75 years ago, <laughs> and I've been paying for that ever since. So people misspell my name all the time, including, I should point out, at least twice my mother did it. <laughs> you, you, you go to my website, Dean, D-E-A-N-E, Waldman, W-A-L-D-M-A-N.com. And you can get all the information. You can contact me. You can find the book there, which I really want people to read. I say to people all the time, would you spend $19.90, well, whatever it is on Amazon's less, would you spend $19.95 for a cure for our healthcare system? And everybody nods their heads yes. I said, well, it's right there, curing the cancer in U.S. healthcare, and it puts you back in control, and I want everybody to read this book and then start saying, Hey, that's what I want. I think, uh, thank you, Dr. Dean. I'll make sure there's all the links will be in the uh, show notes for this episode. I want to thank you very much for being on this podcast and your your message is important. Let's get the message out there. Thank you. And have a great day. Wrapping up. I want to say thank you, Dr. Dean, for being a guest on the podcast. You can find more about him and his book over at drdeanwalman.com or I also have a link in the, in the show notes. Um, you can find all the show notes and links I talked about in the show at nocityonthesideline.com slash 69. Hey, please re- reach out, leave a message, comment, question, or we can continue the conversation in anywhere, Facebook, on the website. Continue the conversation because insurance is important. You can also find my contact information at nocityonthesideline.com slash contact. Final thoughts, health insurance is important. It's more information you have, better off we are, and better informed we are. Because I need to make sure I'm informed for my son, myself, especially when healthcare is such an important topic. Well, thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. Give your kids a hug. Tell them much you love them. Man, because time goes by fast. I mean fast. God bless. Take care. See ya. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to the newsletter to receive updates of the show and helpful and useful tips. This has been a production of Foley 42 Media.